Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for every good and perfect gift. We know that you are the Lord of life. In you there is no shadow of turning. Lord, I pray that you would enlighten us. Lord, that you would indwell us. Lord, help us to live this truth that your truth, your word is a light into our path, a lamp into our feet. We praise you, Father, and we ask this in the powerful name of Christ and the people of God said, amen. Well, we know that this topic is very relevant. It's very personal for many uh, as you have friends, loved ones who identify as gay or lesbian. And yet, if we're really being honest, we would recognize that often Christians, we aren't doing a very good job at engaging on this topic. Actually, we are doing quite a poor job. In general, Christians, we have a very bad reputation. People think and hear that we're Christians, and they already think a lot of bad things. So there is a book called Unchristian that asked young Americans, what do you think about Christians? And what they found was quite surprising. What they found was that Christians, we are viewed to be in a, we are, we have, there's a lot, very negative light that is shed upon us. Christians, we are viewed to be, you can see from the bottom of the list, confusing, not accepting, boring, insensitive, out of touch, too political, and guess what's at the very, very top? Anti-homosexual. Look at those numbers. 91% of those not raised in the church. 91%. That's an enormous percentage. But what about our friends? What about Christians? What about those who are raised in the church? Well, eight out of 10 believe that we ourselves are anti-homosexual. Note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say anti-homosexuality. I-T-Y, three letters, but big difference. Anti-homosexuality is kind of more viewed to be against this topic. But according to this survey, Christians are viewed to be against gay people. And that is wrong. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not against anyone. It's for people turning to Christ, surrendering wholly to the Lord, turning from their sins and turning to God. It's for people. It's an invitation for all, and so should we, my friends, be for people. But unfortunately, people's perception is their reality. So how can we do a better job at engaging on this topic. So, I'm going to center my talk around a few things, and if you would like a copy of my notes, you can scan this QR code here. Um, let's see. Sorry. You can scan this QR code here. Uh, this is just a PDF uh, file of my notes. If you scan it with your mobile readers right now, you will be asked to uh, sign up for Dropbox. You can actually say, no, thank you. Um, I don't want to sign up for Dropbox and just uh, get my notes. And um, 
But if you don't know what a QR code is, that's okay. You can just jot down the shortened URL at the bottom there and get my notes. So there's going to be a lot of information here um, and my, sorry, my remote is not working right now. Um, try this again. Technology is sometimes good, but it's horrible when it doesn't work. So there's many ways that we can have a Christian response. We could focus on what's going on in public policy and government. We could look at this strictly as a sociological or psychological developmental disorder. But actually, I think the best way to have a true Christian response to homosexuality is to use as our foundation the gospel of Jesus Christ. That all of us are sinners, and yet in spite of our sin, the God of the universe still loves us. I think that's a great foundation to build any response to anything. Actually, that should be the foundation for everything that we do as Christians. So how do we do that? And we're going to center my talk around these four uh, things. The first has to do with um, our attitude, because I think that's a great place to start, that we want to make sure that we have the right attitude before we do anything. So first and foremost, first step is we need to be convicted. We need to be convicted about our own brokenness, our own sin. You know, when I lived as a gay man many years ago, I felt Christians were telling me that somehow gays and lesbians deserved a hotter place in hell. That Jesus had to hang on the cross a little bit longer for those in the gay community. But that is not true. That's so far from the truth. Yes, same-sex relationships are sinful, but it is not the worst sin. And yet, you might have heard some messages or people who talk, Christians who talk about same-sex relationships or those in the gay community, and there's such animosity or disdain. And And yet, that is not God's intent. Yes, it is true that same-sex relationships are sinful, but it is not the worst sin. And yet, unfortunately, sometimes we treat it like the worst sin. But you might think, but the Bible says it's an abomination, and that's true. Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13 says that same-sex relationships are sinful, but it's not the worst. Because if we read the whole Bible, you'll find in the middle of the Bible, the book called Proverbs, where it says that there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination. And you know what it lists? Lists things like pride, dissension. And so when was the last time your friend was a little bit prideful and you say, you are abomination? <laughs> well, I hope you do, because when we do that, we aren't trivializing sin that really grieves God's heart. You might have some friends who say, but I can't help it. When I see it thrown in my face, when I see it being celebrated on television, on Hollywood, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Some people might even say, it makes me feel un- it makes me kind of grossed out. But I think that feeling that some people might have of being uncomfortable or, or even disgust should really be a reminder for them that that feeling is just a fraction of what God feels when he looks at their own sin. So our sin is just as odious in God's eyes than someone else's sin. 
Because at the end of the day, my hope is that we would lead people to Christ. But that's never done through a holier-than-thou attitude. Have you ever met anyone who came to Christ through a holier-than-thou attitude? Oh, I came to Jesus. This lady, she was so pompous. I've never heard that before. Ever. Have you? I mean, I haven't. It's always someone who is very gentle, compassionate, gracious, who's honest about their own struggles. That is what draws people, not holier-than-thou attitude. So first and foremost, before we do anything, we need to uh, recognize that it's not the worst sin. We need to be convicted about our own sin, but also that our sin is just as odious in God's eyes than someone else's sin. Because have you noticed how easy it is to be discussed about someone else's sin? How easy it is to, uh, to, to look at someone else and say, oh, I can't believe what she's doing. I would never do that. Of course, you wouldn't do that because that's not your sin struggle. But we don't say the same thing about our own sin, and we should. So first and foremost, before we do anything else, we need to be convicted about our own sin that leads to humility. Second, we need to be consistent. And we do that consistent in three ways. First of all, consistent regarding relationships. What is your relationship status? Are you married or are you single? Because in our day, we have elevated marriage higher than it ought to be. Both those in the Christian community and those who are not Christian. In the U.S., same-sex marriage was legalized in 2015, and they were all celebrating marriage equality. But what you heard from those who were advocating for marriage equality was, without the right to marry, people have no purpose. They have no identity. They have no value, even. Is that what marriage gives us? Identity and value and happiness and meaning? Marriage is good, but it's not the best. It shouldn't be the only means to be happy. So in other words, people who aren't happy are unhappy. And you might think, I kind of see where we have this imbalance, but what does this have to do with my gay friend a lot? Because the Word of God tells us that being in a same-sex relationship is not God's will. And if it's not God's will, then what does that mean for our gay friends to not be in a same-sex relationship? And to not be in a same-sex relationship means for them to be single for a period in their life, if not for a longer period in their life. And if so, do we have a healthy place for singles to thrive in Christian community today? Not really. We treat singleness to be equivalent to loneliness. Not just Christians, but those in the world. I mean, I don't blame them because they don't, they're not, they're, what they understand is not rooted in God's truth. Many of those in the gay community tell me what you're saying is your God wants me to be lonely for the rest of my life. And what they're doing is they're equating singleness with loneliness, but it's not the same thing as loneliness. Because actually, I know some people who are married and they're still miserably lonely. <laughs> so marriage is not the cure to loneliness. You know what's the cure to loneliness? It begins with a relationship with God. That is the cure to loneliness, not another person. But we treat marriage as if it's the end-all, be-all. 
that once you achieve that, you will be happy and complete. As a matter of fact, when the Supreme Court made that monumental decision in the U.S., striking down many of the state laws, there was one of the justices who wrote this. He wrote the majority opinion. At the very end, you could find it online, in the majority opinion, he wrote... Marriage is the highest ideal of love. He wrote, marriage is the highest ideal of love. I disagree. Marriage is not the highest ideal of love. It's a form of a loving relationship. It's an expression of love, but not the highest. You know what's the highest? God. God is not only loving, but he is love. It's an ontological reality of our God. So when someone says something different, I'm going to very respectfully but firmly disagree. Marriage is good, but it's not the best. God is. As a matter of fact, I wrote, um, and we'll probably have it maybe at my signing or maybe I'll bring it to um, my workshop tomorrow. I wrote something with my good friend, Rosaria Butterfield. If you guys are interested in some great resources, uh, Rosaria Butterfield uh, is, is a phenomenal, she's actually someone that I looked up highly. I think she's one, probably the most or one of the most important voices in our time today, in our world, on this topic of homosexuality. Uh, some of you might be familiar with her. She was a, a tenured English professor at Syracuse University. Uh, she was atheist. Her study, in her, her PhD studies was in uh, feminist queer studies uh, and also 18th century romanticism um, but she says she was a consistent feminist um, which, for her, which for her meant to be a lesbian and um, she studied the religious right and part of her studies led to her if she was studying the crazy Christians she thought well I, if I'm going to study them I got to read their silly book that bible so she did as an English professor And as she did, the Holy Spirit radically changed her life. And she went from being an atheist, um, feminist, queer, lesbian, to now being a homeschool mom married to a pastor. Like, she didn't do just a 180. She did like a a 720. Is that what you call the 180? (laughs) Uh, God just radically, radically transformed her life. But uh, we wrote this together, um, and and it's called uh, Something Greater Than Marriage. Marriage is good, but it is not the best. You can find it online. But we were basically responding that, yes, marriage is good, but it definitely is not the best. But we treat it like it is. We treat marriage as if you attain that and you've, like, You've just succeeded in life. Like, you finally graduated from being a pitiful single person to being like a a human being. We even instill that and brainwash our children. Think back when you were a child, when people would read you fairy tales. Do do they still do that here in the UK, fairy tales? How do all fairy tales end? You guys remember that? How do all fairy tales end? Anyone remember? Right, well, first, they get married, and then they live happily ever after, right? 
I mean, think about that. Like, what are we telling our kids? They get married. The end. Like, no more story to tell you, you, you know, tell here. The end. You know, that's it. Married. End. End of story. Like, no 10-year checkup. No 20-year checkup. I mean, hopefully, they're still living happily ever after. Or, I mean, it's 2019, so hopefully they're still married. But the real truth is, what we should teach you, I mean, that marriage should not be the only means to be happy. Marriage should not be the only means to get full contentment. You know how we should meet, meet our, get our contentment? It begins with Christ. A relationship with Christ is how we are fully content, whether we're married or whether we are single. And I'm not dissing marriage. I mean, if you've heard my testimony, I'm a single man. I'm 49, for, about to, I'm, gonna, I'm 48 now, 49 this month. I'm a single man. And I definitely have this burden to help the church have a correct biblical understanding of singleness. But I'm not saying singleness is bad. I'm not dissing marriage. I'm not saying that marriage is bad. I'm sorry. But I'm saying that marriage is good. As a matter of fact, as Christians, we must lift up the beauty and gift of marriage. But let me tell you what I think we've done. We've done that at the expense of singleness. Whereas singleness is a consolation prize. I'm sorry you're single. You might even have some Christian friends who are single. Heaven forbid they're 30, 40 plus years. And they're not married. Many Christian singles, you know what they get from the church? Pity. Christian singles don't need our pity. They need to be loved. They need to be shown that even though they might not have family of their own, you know what they do have? True family. And you know what that is? The eternal family, which is the church, the body of Christ. We are truly missing, I believe, a demographic in our community. I mean, the UK is ahead of us in this area. Where here in the UK, there are more single adults than there are married adults. Did you guys know that? Is that something, I mean, many, even in America, we're, we're getting close. We're getting close. And I know, I mean, that doesn't mean that, that, that these singles in the UK or in America are, li- are actually living holy lives. I mean, many of them are cohabitating. Many of them are maybe in and out different relationships. Um, and some of them might even be in committed relationships, but they're not married. But definitely we are missing a segment if you're looking at your churches today, how many, how many unmarried people are in our churches? Not close to 50%. So we are definitely missing a demographic. We're treating singleness as a consolation prize, even as a curse. So I have this, fre- I have this friend, uh, she was a mis- missionary in China. And she was pretty young when she went to China. She stayed there for five years and she came back. Uh, she went back to the U.S. on furlough. And she came back single from China. And when she was on furlough, she hadn't seen several of her friends for a long time. And so when she did, her friends would ask her similar questions like about ministry. How was China? What are your future ministry plans? And then, of course, you would get to some personal things like, are you dating anyone? Do you have anyone special in your life? And each time she said, no, not yet. Do you know how some of her friends responded to her? Can I pray for you? It was as if she had cancer. Singleness is not cancer. 
Singleness is not a curse, but don't we treat it like it is? We need to look to the Word of God to tell us and inform us what is a biblical understanding of singleness. Do you know in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul spends an entire chapter not only talking about marriage, but also talking about singleness. And in this chapter, you know that Paul says that not only is singleness good, he says that it's a gift. A gift. Truly a gift. But may I give you a little bit of advice for you in this room who are not single and you're married? Please don't keep reminding your single Christian friends that this is a gift. Because I know very few Christian singles that actually like that verse. It does not make them feel better. Like, I don't know of any Christians who are like, amen, I love it when Paul says that it's a gift. Hallelujah. That's, actually, that's my life verse. You know, I love it. I get up every morning. Yay. It's usually the opposite, right? It's usually saying, I actually have no idea what Paul is talking about here when he gets, says it's a gift. Like, it does not feel like a gift. As a matter of fact, what's the return policy on that gift? You know, still got that receipt. I'm going to give it back like a bad Christmas present. You know, re-gift it or something. I don't want it. And I understand that as a single man. It's single, being single is not easy. It's hard. But after talking to some married people, I have heard that marriage can be hard. There are some challenges that come with marriage. But along with those challenges, we cannot negate the fact that there are some blessings. In the same way, singleness definitely has some challenges and is hard. But there are also some blessings that come with being single. Then why is it that we only focus upon the enormous blessings of marriage and the enormous challenges of singleness. See how this is starkly inconsistent and also unbiblical? I mean, we can all agree that marriage is a gift. Hallelujah. But when it comes to singleness, we don't say with all of our heart and agree with the Bible to say that singleness is a gift. Instead, you know what many people say about singleness? They don't say it's a gift. Instead, you know what they say? They say singleness, it's a calling. (laughs) You know, not anyone can be single. You have to make sure you're really, really, really called to be single. You have to be either Superman or Wonder Woman to be single, which I don't know if you've noticed, but many, many of the superheroes are single. And their love interest is their weakness. Again, what are we teaching our kids? Not the best thing. And, you know, the majority of my Christian friends are married, and they're even happily married. But they tell me the secret that marriage is not easy. It takes work. Giving of yourselves, loving unconditionally, by the way, that's not easy. As a matter of fact, Paul in Ephesians 5 says, lay your life down for your wife. Amen, ladies? Amen, wives? You can kind of do this to your your husband now. Lay your life down for me. So I don't, actually, I don't know what husband that doesn't struggle with that nearly impossible calling. So do you know what I say tongue-in-cheek about marriage? I say marriage... That's a calling, seriously. (laughs) Singleness is a gift. I don't have to lay my life down for anyone yet. But I'm not saying 
that marriage is better than singleness or singleness is better than marriage. I'm simply looking at the full counsel of God and recognizing that godly marriage and godly singleness are two sides of the same coin. We should no longer only emphasize one over against the other. As a matter of fact, we are not even ready to address this issue of sexuality until we first redeem singleness. So we need to be consistent regarding relationships. Second, we need to be consistent regarding sexuality. And so I talked about this in the first hour. What is God's standard for sexuality? If it's not heterosexuality, because it's too broad, which can include sinful relationships. And if homosexuality is not God's will, because obviously homosexual behavior is not the will of God, but homosexual desires are sinful, Homosexual temptations are also can lead to sin. It's not actual sin, but it's rooted in our sin nature. So therefore, it's not God's will. Then what is it that is God's standard? So when we do, a, do away with this secular paradigm of heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual, we set that aside and look to God's paradigm, we recognize that God's true standard is Holy sexuality, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. And notice, in, my, in the last hour, I said that these are two paths. I did not call them two choices. That's very, very important. Because holiness is not our choice. We can't choose to be righteous. Because that would be works righteousness. It's given by God. But I also said it's two paths because even... I mean, practically, we realize that singleness is not a choice. And you know why I can, I can say that for certain? Singleness is not a choice because I've never met anyone who was born married. Think about it. We're all single from birth. Actually, singleness is default. Even as you get, even as you get married, you choose to marry As you get older in life, people who are married for many, many years go through life. At the end, one will usually go home to be with the Lord before the other. And when they do, what happens to the other? They leave the other behind and they are unmarried and single, not by choice. So singleness is not a choice. It's just A condition, that's what we are. Marriage is a choice, but even then it should be God who puts them together. And you might think, well, that's fine, but my gay friend has only one path, whatever you want to call it, path of choice, you might say, only one path to be on. Not necessarily so. First of all, because I believe in the sovereignty of God, God can even do what we think is impossible. Which is why I actually shy away from using the word celibacy. In the U.S., we're kind of broiled in this controversy with the priesthood, and sometimes this word celibacy is closely associated with the priesthood and sort of wanting to distance myself away from that. But also just the common, you know, people can say, well, when I say celibacy, I just mean abstinent. Well, that's one definition, but celibacy, more common definition, means a chosen lifelong vocation, as if this is what you're going to be for the rest of my life. And I don't find that in Scripture. Do you know that actually the word celibacy is found nowhere in the Bible? It's not found anywhere in the Bible. 
Celibacy is from the Latin root celibatus. And even that Latin word is not found in the Latin Bible, which was translated in the 400s by Jerome. He didn't even use that word. The word was around then, but where this word celibacy really developed is after that time, especially during the medieval period in the Roman Catholic Church. And then it be, was kind of came to mean this, this vow, this, this kind of vocation that you choose to be. And I just don't find that in Scripture, that anyone is necessarily called to. 1 Corinthians 7, that calling that Paul is talking about is not a call to celibacy, since there's no word there for celibacy, but it's really a call of salvation. If you look carefully in that, uh, and I talk about that in my new book. But um, so it's not really an option. You might think, well, my gay friend only has that path to be on to be single for the rest of their life. Not necessarily so. So let, let me tell you this illustration about a friend of mine. I have this friend who lived as a gay man for many years, comes to Christ, and he stops pursuing same-sex relationships. And because he never had these desires for the opposite sex, no sexual desires, no romantic desires, he was just going to be single for the rest of his life. And he was okay with that. He was part of a great church that was like his family. They came around him, was accountability. They mentored and discipled him. He became really close friends with this other young lady who was also a recent Christian. She came from a broken past. She never was in any type of same-sex relationship, but she dated boys. She was sexually active. Unfortunately, she even had a few abortions. Many of those relationships with her, with her boyfriends were a bit toxic. So when she came to Christ, she committed to just not date because she really wanted to focus on a relationship with God. So the two of them felt safe. There wasn't that the weirdness or anxiety that often happens or the unknown between a young man and a young lady. You know what I mean? Like, does he like me? Does she like me? Like, oh my goodness, he's looking at me. What does that mean? Because... He knew she didn't want to date, and she knew he didn't like girls. So they were able to be best friends, no tension. Well, after some time of being best friends, he began noting some things about her that he hadn't noticed before, like her hair. She smelled good, and she had curves. He says puberty is hard going through once. Try going through puberty twice. He got up enough courage, asked her out on a date, and after some dating, he asked her to marry him. And after some time of dating, uh, and, and, and uh, after he asked her to marry him, on their wedding night, he told his new bride, he said, honey, I cannot explain this. I'm not attracted to any other women. I'm only attracted to you. That is holy Sexuality, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. It is given by God. Not something that we kind of muster up on our own strength, but it is given by God. Holy sexuality. 
So we need to be convic- consistent regarding relationships, sexuality. Third, we need to be consistent regarding change. What does change look like? Does change mean going to gay, from gay to straight? Obviously not, because if one becomes straight, whatever that means, or just has solely opposite sexual attractions, he still needs to resist those temptations and flee sin. So actually, it's holiness that is the goal. So obviously, it's not gay to straight that is the goal. But what about if a person still has those temptations? So, for example, if there's a young man and he still is tempted, you know, has those same-sex temptations, is that evidence that this individual has not truly, fully been changed or delivered? Well, do we apply that, like, standard for any other sin struggle? Say I have a friend who was a drunk. He comes to Christ. He stops drinking by the power of the Holy Spirit. But after years of sobriety, he admits that he still has an urge to drink and get drunk, but he doesn't. Would we tell him, you haven't been changed? We need to lay some hands on you. You need some deliverance. I hope not. Because the manifestation of God's grace is more evident in his life because he says no to his flesh and says yes to God. So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling or tempted, because God does not promise us that we won't be tempted. You know, Jesus Christ was tempted in every way, but he was without sin. If Jesus was tempted, we also will be tempted. There's a difference between being tempted and giving in to temptation, which is sin. Being tempted is not sin, but giving in to temptation is sin. Whether it's giving in to temptation leading to sinful desires or giving in to temptation leading to sinful behavior. That's sin, but not simply being tempted. And it's really important that I'm giving you these consistent, being that with the fact that we need to be consistent. Because I think for years, we have treated this, that we need to have this orientation change as if that is the mode to be fully changed. I even sometimes get that, that I don't believe in true change. But that's only people who would say then that change is a secular definition that is, you know, determined by the secular paradigm of sexual orientation. I would say change should be biblically defined. That change is not a gay to straight change, but change is from unbelief to belief. Change is from sin to holiness. Holiness is our standard. Because when we make orientation change the standard, we can change, you know, we can make someone the goal to change their orientation, but they still can be unholy. And that is not biblical change. I believe in change. Anyone else believe in change? Change empowered by God, not to make you from unholy to unholy, but from unholy to holy. Because what I've also seen is a wake of pain and bad consequences. Because in this idea of kind of promoting this concept of this secular change, gay to straight, 
it has diagnosed this incorrectly. Diagnosis. When you go to a doctor, let's say you're not feeling well. Maybe you have a fever or you have some other symptoms and you don't know what it is. So you want to go to a doctor because the first thing before you want your doctor to treat you is you want the doctor to diagnose you correctly. If the doctor is able to diagnose you correctly, then that means that the doctor can treat you correctly. If the doctor gives you an incorrect diagnosis, what's then mostly going to happen? The treatment will also be incorrect. When it comes to this, I think often we have diagnosed this incorrectly. We have not treated it as the Bible does. We treat it more as a psychological disorder, as a developmental problem. What do I mean by this? How many of you guys have ever heard, especially from Christians, that somehow the root causes of homosexuality are an absentee father, dominant mother, or abuse in one's childhood? How many of you guys have heard that before? Anyone? So that seems to be oftentimes like the main go-to for Christians, that it is an absentee father, dominant you know, mother, or abuse in one's childhood. So not to say that those could be influences. Actually, I see those more as a catalyst than a cause. Anyone, any chemists in here or anyone that likes science? So you know the difference between a catalyst? A catalyst cannot cause a reaction, right? You guys remember that? Back, way back in high school chemistry. A catalyst cannot cause a reaction. But what can a catalyst do? It can speed up a reaction, right? So I think the influences from my childhood are only catalysts, not causes. So what then is the cause? We need to look to the Bible. The Bible says that the, that the problem, that this is sinful behavior. What's the root cause of sinful behavior? It's not our childhood past. When we blame things on our childhood past solely for our sin, you know what that is? It's not biblical, it's Freudian. Unfortunately, I think many Christians are following Freud more than they're following Christ. So it's not that that is the main problem. If sin is a problem, then Christ is the answer. Our ba- the correct diagnosis is recognizing that our sinful behavior, the only root cause for that is our sin nature. Don't blame another person. That's what Adam and Eve did, right? Who ate the apple? You know, God went to Adam. What did he say? He's like, oh, my bad. That's my fault. Is that what Adam said? No, what did he say? It's that woman you gave me, God, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, great. You know, and then looked at Eve. It's a serpent, a serpent that deceived me. Aren't we, I mean, aren't we, we're experts at like shoving the blame, right? I'll, I'll just speak for myself. I'm an expert at shoving the blame. That's like our human nature. It's, you know, he made me do it, right? She made me do it. It's not my fault. As Christians, we need to say, you know what? I'm responsible for my sin. Don't shift the blame. But it's not only for us personally, for our own individual sin, but it also impacts parents. In this room, I bet there are some parents who have prodigals. Maybe you have a son or daughter who's walked away from Christ or rejected Christ. Maybe they never embraced Christ. Maybe you have a son or daughter who says, I'm gay. I'm lesbian. 
I'm trans, I'm, you know, I'm queer, whatever it is. And I wouldn't be surprised that you have guilt and shame. Please hear me today. It's not your fault. Perfect parenting never guarantees perfect children. Look at Adam and Eve. Didn't they have a perfect father? Yes or no? Yes. Weren't they raised in a perfect environment, right? The Garden of Eden, perfect environment. They still rebelled. What makes you think you can do better? You know the job of a Christian parent is not necessarily to produce godly children. That is not your job. You know what your job is as a Christian parent? Is to be a godly parent. You cannot make your children Christian. You cannot make your children godly. Only God can. You're not God. But what, you, what, can, what can you do? Be godly. Point your children to Christ and then let God be God. You might know of some parents who were like awful parents, like they were never home. They just, you know, maybe let, I don't know, let, let babysitters take care of the kids or take them to daycare. Like that's, you know, they, they never even took them to church and then their children turned out great. Like their children are following Christ and they're just wonderful. And like we can collectively say unfair, right? We can all say we don't like those parents, not fair. But you can look at some other parents and maybe you're that parent where you're like, I did everything that I could to raise my children fearing the Lord. I mean, maybe you're a father and you're like, I gave up some raises. I did not go up the corporate ladder simply so I can spend more time at home to raise my kids I mean, and to love them. Maybe you're a mother and you're like, I gave up my whole career to raise my kids and now you have a child or more that have turned away from God. What happened? It's not your fault. And more importantly, you're not God. All that tells me is that parents, just as you cannot take all the glory when your kids turned out great, in the same way you cannot take the blame for your kids who walk away from Christ or they reject Christ. You point your kids to Christ. You be godly for yourself and let God be God. Amen? So we need to be convicted, leading to humility. We need to be consistent in three ways regarding relationships, sexuality, and change. And then third, we need to be compassionate. You know, I've been teaching at Moody Bible Institute for over 10 years. And every year I get students that confide with me about their sexuality. And because of that shame that they feel, many times they say that because they feel isolated, that they sometimes suffer with depression and even thoughts of suicide. That should move us. That they are followers of Christ who for whatever reason feel that they can't share this one struggle with the rest of us. So for some, this can be an issue between life and death. So how do we be a more compassionate place? First of all, just expect that this is present here in our churches, in our small groups, in the body of Christ, in our pews, in our own homes. Not be surprised 
Like, I get that. A shock when people come up to me and share with me. They say, my best friend just came out to me. You know, they just shared with me. You know, they still love Christ. They know this is sin, but they have same-sex attractions. And they're like, I don't know how that happened. Because they came from a good home. Their parents were Christian. They were even homeschooled. And I'm like, wait one second. Are you really saying that if someone has Christian parents, they're a good, good home, they're, they're even homeschooled, that they're somehow exempt from struggling with sin? Is that what, what you're saying? Okay, newsflash. I'm sensing in this room right now, I mean, there's, you know, there's a group of us here. I'm sensing that there's probably maybe three or four, maybe five of you in this room that's struggling with sin. Don't raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass you. (laughs) Right? We're all struggling with this. I mean, what's the body of Christ? Are we a group of you who've got it all together, don't have any problems? We've got our ducks in a row. We'd hold hands once a week and we sing Kumbaya. Is that what the church is? Or is a church a group of people who know that we're broken and we need Christ? You know, I'll just be honest with you. I am broken and I need Christ. Anyone else out there that can relate to that in any way? And so let us all hand to hand walk together to him. Not because I can fix you, I can't. Not because I have the answers, I don't. But I certainly know someone who does. And his name is Jesus. So we just need to find our solidarity in this. That we all need Christ. I don't think that we need to be further separated into our sin categories. I don't think that what I need most is a support group of people who are all struggling with the same thing. Because I know that the victory for my sin is found in Christ and in the body of Christ, meaning the local church, not just my friends, not just people who are just like me, in the body of Christ. I need the diversity of the whole body of Christ, people who are wrestling with other sins that I can find solidarity, not in the fact that we are struggling with the same thing, but in the fact that we all need Christ. That's what we need. Second, we need to know our position. And this means more than just don't sin, it's wrong. Don't do it. Because that doesn't really help people in their time of need. You know what I need most? I mean, this is What I need most is I want to communicate my main position, not just on what not to do, but my main position, my main takeaway is this, that I want to lead people into a deeper relationship with Christ. You know, I just don't want people who say, oh, I know Christ. How many of you guys have friends that are like, oh, I know God. Yeah, I know God, but it's not showing in their life. I know God. You know, the demons know God. Satan knows God. And it's making no difference in their lives. I actually don't want people simply to know God. I want them to fully surrender to Christ. You know, Jesus Christ, when he pulled his disciples to the side and he said, if anyone would come after me, he or she must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. You know, oftentimes people look at those verses and say, well, that's for like super Christians. That's for pastors. No, that's for missionaries. Not for me, though. Like, I take the Bible pretty literally. When it says, if anyone, I think that actually means if anyone. I mean, call me simple. 
Jesus said, if anyone, so I believe, if anyone means if anyone. Must, then. That doesn't really sound very optional. Must deny himself, pick up his cross. I mean, you know what we want? We want to follow Jesus. We don't want to deny yourself and pick up a cross. We just want to skip over those first two things. If you don't do those two things, you can't follow Christ. Oh, but you might say, oh, I didn't, you know, I pick up my cross every day. You know, I go into work and I have this boss that just hates Christians. So they know, you know, he knows I'm a Christian and he's just always being mean to me. But I just got to pick up my cross every day. When Jesus was talking about picking up your cross, he wasn't talking about being treated badly because you're a Christian. Picking up a cross really didn't mean bearing a burden. You know when Jesus said, pick up your cross? That was in the context of first century Israel, which was Palestine, which was part of Rome. And do you know that in first century, the Greco-Roman world, you know what the cross meant? The cross was not meant to be a pretty piece of art. The cross was not meant to be a pretty piece of jewelry. You know what the cross meant in the first century? The cross meant one of the most gruesome, painful ways to die that history has ever known. And Jesus is saying, pick that up and follow me. Following Jesus should cost us everything. If it hasn't, you're following the wrong Jesus. Because when we give up everything and then God allows us to keep some things, we know those things are no longer ours, they're all his. So we need to know our position that is about full surrender to Christ. Third, maybe you have a friend who you've always wondered whether they're struggling with this, and you want to ask them, you know, is this what your struggle is? Because you want to be there for them. So how do you ask? Don't. I mean, imagine if someone came up to you out of the blue and asked, hey, are you gay? Or do you have same-sex attractions? Awkward. I'll just let you know. I don't know how, how that could ever turn out in a positive way. But what you can do is give assurance of your friendship. Tell them, I thank God for you, and I just want you to know nothing can change my love or my friendship for you. Because when you do, you've just created a safe space and invited them in. Actually, we should be doing that with all of our close friends. Fourth, let's be a group of people who take seriously in saying no to the gay jokes, saying no to bullying. And... You may say, I'm an adult, I don't really bully. I mean, that's for like junior high kids or whatever, but you might have kids who are that age. We need to be proactive in telling our kids that there's no place to bully anyone. It's not Christian at all. But unfortunately, I see adults who might say a gay, Christian adults who might say a gay joke. It could be a simple hand gesture, it could be talking with a lisp. And it might be funny for the moment, but you never know when someone might be in earshot of that joke, and maybe they're wrestling with their sexuality, or maybe they just had their loved one, their son or daughter that came out, and they're thinking, well, I know I'm not going to tell 
anyone here, we should never be, be viewed as being unsafe. As a matter of fact, I believe the church should be the safest place in the world. So the question is, are you safe? So we need to be compassionate. Lastly, fourth, we need to be complete. This is talking about complete in our truth. Why do we focus upon God's truth? Because it's the truth that sets us free. So the question is, then what is God's truth? Oh, that's easy. It's a sin, you might say. That's true, but is there anything else? No, that's it. It's a sin. When we only say that this is sin, you know what that's equivalent to? That's equivalent to giving someone a gospel tract. You guys remember those gospel tracts? And remember the four spiritual laws? Well, this is not the four spiritual laws. It's the one spiritual law that goes something like this. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Sorry. In case you didn't know, that's not good news. I mean, actually, there's nothing good about that. That's all bad news. And yet, if you think about it, that seems to be the only message that evangelicals we have been giving to the gay community. You're a sinner. You're going to hell. There's no hope for you. It's no wonder why the gay community want nothing to do with us. Because we have not been giving them the good news. We have been telling them the bad news. We have not been telling them the complete truth. We have been telling them an incomplete truth. And you know when when you tell someone an incomplete truth, that's just as harmful as telling someone a lie. So what is the complete truth? Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists 10 sins. And in this list of 10 sins are two Greek words that focus upon homosexual behavior. Sometimes Christians will look at these verses and say, look, gays and lesbians won't inherit the kingdom of God. When they do that, they conveniently forget about the eight other sins. Because if we look at all 10 sins, none of us inherited the kingdom of God. Bad news. But I praise the Lord that Paul did not stop there. He goes on to say in one of my favorite verses, he says in verse 11 of chapter 6, he says, such were. What, what tenses were? Past. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. That actually is not good news. It's amazing news. That's news that we can declare to anyone who needs to know about Jesus Christ. So our message must be redemptive. It has to focus upon the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, our friends and loved ones in the gay community, you know, the main problem, if you want to call it that, is not their sexuality. That's not their main problem. Their main problem is to fully surrender to Christ, deny themselves, pick up their crosses and follow Christ. That's their main problem. Actually, isn't that all of our main problems? So, You know, my biggest sin was not being in a same-sex relationship. My biggest sin was unbelief. That is what separated me from God. So we need to focus upon the most important thing. 
which is belief and faith in Christ. So we must be redemptive. We need to be redemptive in all and everything that we do. So then I'm, I'm gonna, how, do we, how do we now minister? I'm going to give you some practical things here at the very end, but I'm going to break it down to two groups. First are Christians who experience same-sex attractions. How do we minister to them? These are Christians who hold to a high view of sexuality, a high view of, of scripture, but they also, and they also, because they hold to a high view of scripture, recognize that same-sex relationships are not God's, God's will. So how do we minister? Then other group, people who identify as gay, many who are not Christian, and some who, uh, you know, think that I can be gay and Christian. They hold uh, to this false understand of the gospel. So we want to share them the true gospel. So first group, Christians who have same-sex attractions. Let's say after Creation Fest, you go home. Maybe later this year, you have a good friend that confides with you that they have, they, they, they're struggling with this. They have these temptations. But they're not acting on it. They know it's sin. How would, how would you respond? What would you do? I think one of the most important things First is thank them. Thank them that they just trusted you with this really private matter, with this secret issue. Don't freak out. Obviously, don't freak out. Ask them more. Ask them some open-ended questions. Another really important question at the end is tell them, how does your faith fit into this? Because what we want to hear is, my faith is strong. Actually, that is my anchor I'm shaping everything around my faith in Christ. That's what we want to hear. But unfortunately, what do we, instead, what do we hear? Instead, they say, well, I don't know about my faith anymore. Or I'm changing my faith to fit, they say, who they are. In other words, their sexuality. So in other words, they're shaping their faith to fit their sexuality. It should be our faith that is interpreting and shaping our desires, not the other way around. Second, tell them that they're not alone. You don't have to be scared about, you know, what to say. I mean, tell, just tell them, you know, I don't know all there is to know about this, but I'm going to learn. But more importantly, I'm committed to walk with you to Jesus. But instead, what do we hear? We hear a lot of people that, you know, their, their friend might share with them. And then the response is, I don't know how to help you. And you know what's the reason? I don't have those desires. Oftentimes, I'll have guys that come up with me. Um, sometimes even church leaders, they're like, man, I just had this person in my church, you know, come in my office and tell me I have same-sex attractions. And this person will tell me, I don't know how, how to help this person. And I'll ask, why? why? And they say, well, I don't have these same-sex attractions. And after kind of explaining some more, like they tell me like kind of five times, I don't have same-sex attractions. And I'm like, okay, I got it. You don't have same-sex attractions. But why does that mean you don't know how to help someone else who has this, this sin struggle? I mean, is it that you have to know everything there is to know about a certain sin struggle, maybe even experience yourself to help someone else? who's struggling with that specific sin struggle. I mean, is that true? Like, like let, let me make it, make it really real for you. Do you have to shoot up with heroin to help a heroin addict? Yes or no? No, thank you. Do you have to look at pornography 
to help someone struggling with the sin of pornography? Yes or no? Thank you. No. Do you have to commit adultery to help someone struggling or a, a, a person who has committed adultery? Yes or no? No. Then why all of a sudden for this one sin issue, you have to experience same-sex attractions to help someone else who has same-sex attractions? Why? Let me tell you this truth, biblical truth. If you know Christ, and if you had any victory over your own sin struggle, you could help another sinner. Do not allow the enemy to convince you that you can't help someone. You know what Satan wants to do? One of his best weapons is isolation. He wants to immobilize you to thinking that you can't help another sinner struggling with this one sin because you don't struggle with that. That is not true. The problem is sin. And if sin is the problem, Christ is the answer, which also means the body of Christ is the answer. The local church is the answer. We need to recognize that that is what we need. When someone comes to you in their time of need and they share with you that they're struggling with this, you know what they don't need most? They really don't need an expert. But you know what they do need? A friend. And you, by God's grace, can be that friend. Third, and this could be probably the most important point here at the end. We need to put our identity in Christ. And I'm going to go more into this tomorrow in, in my breakout session. But I don't know of any sin issue where we have made our sin who we are. If you know a liar, that's not who they are, is it? But what they do. If you know someone who's a gossiper, we don't view that person and say, that's who you are, but we view that as as what they do. An adulteress, that's not who she is, but what she does. But why is it when it comes to sexuality, We have made sexuality not what you feel, not what you do, but who you are. That's why I don't use the term gay. I identified as gay back then, not because simply this is what I felt. Because I know some people who would say, oh no, I use that term gay simply to mean that these are my attractions and they're strong and then they're enduring. Okay, fine. But as individuals, we, are, we cannot redefine or limit the scope of words. Words are words. Words matter. We can't redefine words. The term gay has come to mean today not what we feel, not what we do. But today, the term gay means this is who I am. Sexuality is not who we are, but how we are. That is so key. Because who we are is grounded in Genesis 1, that we're all created in the image of God. 
how we are is explained in Genesis 3 that we all have a sin nature. That because of the fall, Adam and Eve sin, and as a result of that, the consequence is what we call original sin. Original sin is not the actual sin of Adam and Eve, but original sin is the consequence of their sin. That resulted in a few things. Obviously, death, not only physical death, but spiritual death. Second, it resulted in guilt, and that's probably one of the hardest things for Christians to kind of understand. I mean, when I first became a Christian, I was like, why in the world am I guilty for something I never did? Anyone else of you think about that before? Like, like it's unfair. I never ate that forbidden fruit, right? Anyone think about that? I have. I, mean, I was like, it's unfair. Why is it because what they did, right, my ancient progenitors... They took the forbidden fruit and ate of it, and now I'm guilty, and now I have to reap their consequences. That's unfair. It wasn't until I learned about Christ's righteousness that I realized that no one ever complains of being righteous for something they never did, but they will complain about being made guilty for something they never did. You cannot cling to Christ's righteousness, that imputed righteousness, and reject imputed guilt. So those go two and two. But the third thing is that we all have a sin nature. And so our identity needs to be in Christ. Fourth, we need to be realistic. And I know I'm going way over, so I'm going to wrap this up. So we we need to be realistic and, and recognize that that. Don't give these false promises that it's just so easy when you come to Christ, you'll have no problems. No, actually, it was easier before I became a Christian. I did whatever I wanted. I had an itch. I scratched it. I had a desire. I did it. Now, I have a heavenly father that I want to please, and I have an enemy nipping at my heels. But the difference is my hope is not bound up in my circumstances. My hope is bound up in the rock. Fifth. We need to don't focus so much on externals, how people walk, how people talk, because what we want to see is change from the inside out, not from the outside in. Sixth, we need to really encourage God-honoring same-sex relationships in the body of Christ. Not just friendships, but we need to really encourage brotherhood and sisterhood relationships. I needed to relearn how to love other men in the way that God intended, that another man, Christian man, is my brother in Christ, and I need to love that other man as family, spiritual family. Then what, how do we share Christ with those in the gay community? First of all, here's some things that you should not do. Do not compare this with an addiction, pedophilia, or murder. That's just not a good way to win people to Christ, by the way. Don't use these two words, lifestyle or choice, that Christians we often use all the time, but it's offensive to those in the gay community. Why? Because they have the wrong identity. They view this as who they are. When you say that that they are, you know, that their behavior is sinful, they don't hear that what they're doing is sinful. What they hear is their whole person is sinful because they can't separate what they do and what they feel from who they are. You see how everything is rooted in identity? As a matter of fact, I think that is the most important thing that Christians, we are missing. This, the fact that identity has become your sexuality, and that is just not anything that lines up with Scripture. Also, don't say the two words, lifestyle, or I'm sorry, don't say the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. Do it, don't say it. Lastly, don't feel the need that you have to debate with people all the time. There's a time for truth, 
But that's once God really begins softening their hearts. So if someone comes at you and thinks, do you think this is sin? I think it's okay to deflect. Jesus Christ did not answer every question. You can deflect and say, I value getting to know you more than debating and arguing all the time. Can we celebrate our similarities and tolerate our differences? Then what should we do? First of all, we need to pray and fast. We have lost the spiritual gift of fasting and praying. There was a popular movie in the U.S. called War Room. Was that, did that come over here? Anyone watch that movie, War Room? So it's, it's warm, this movie about, you know, um, this, this strong, you know, the prayer, this wife that prayed for her husband um, who got to know this other lady who was a prayer warrior. So that movie was written by the Kendrick brothers. And the Kendrick brothers then, they wrote it, did the script, uh, but they wanted to turn that, that movie into a book. So they asked Chris Fabry, uh, an author, to write this book. It was published by Tyndall House. We actually got a complimentary copy of the book. And when it, the book came out, we saw it, and it opened up to the um, endorsement, acknowledgement, and we saw that actually that book was dedicated to my mom. Do battle for people who are unable to battle for others. Uh, second, listen. Don't be quick to speak, but be quick to Listen. Third, be intentional. Don't be afraid to invite someone over, your gay neighbor over for dinner. And I know Christians might say, you know, but if you do that, you're condoning their sin. But last time I checked, we usually have sinners over for dinner. Nothing new. (laughs) Fourth, be patient and persistent. For someone to come to know Christ, it often takes time. For me to turn around in eight years is a short time. I know people who've been praying for decades. If God was in the long haul for you, let's do the same for others. Lastly, be transparent. Share what God is doing in your life. If you know someone who doesn't know Christ and you kind of open up your Bible and you start, you know, pointing to them, they're not going to listen. They don't believe in the Bible. They don't even believe in God yet. But you know what they can argue with? What God means to you. How Christ has changed your life lately. Because if you know Christ, you should not be the same as you were 10 months ago, 10 years ago, or even 10 weeks ago. God should be continually transforming you. You know, I would never consider the gospel if I didn't see the gospel lived out of my parents' lives. I didn't pick up the Bible from the trash can. Remember that in my story? The trash. If I didn't see the Bible lived out of my father's life and my mother's life. I did not leave pursuing same-sex relationships because someone convinced me they were sinful because my parents told me I was living in sin. No, I didn't leave it because of that. I left it because they showed me something better. And his name is Christ. Our job is to live our lives in a way that it is unmistakable that no matter what they're clinging to, all the fool's gold in the world, job, career, money, children, family, no matter what they're clinging to, not only is Jesus better than all of that, but following Christ is best. So may we live our lives in a way that it is unmistakable that not only following Jesus better, but it is best. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you are moving in us. I pray, Father, for everyone that is here, that we would live lives radically following Christ, that it is by no mistake when people see us, that not only is knowing you, surrendering to you, and following you better than anything that this world has to offer, 
but it is vast. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask this in the powerful, matchless name of Christ and the people of God said, amen. Thank you.